Good morning. Good morning. Um, incredibly excited to be here with you this morning. So excited. As, as Shane mentioned, we have uh, been at Imago Day. what will be seven years actually in August. Uh, we first started attending, uh, coming to Imago Day. Our first, the birthday for Imago Day was the third birthday. And we remember going out to Falls Lake, or I did at least. My wife wasn't able to come and enjoying Jay's barbecue. And we thought, if this is how they celebrate at Imago Day, we're staying here, okay? No. Um, but we love this church. We love this church family. We're in, excited about the opportunity to be sent out uh, by this church and supported. Uh, although we're right down the road, it is, uh, it is, there's an open field. Um, and uh, my, my wife, who's here with us, Heather and I, we, when we first showed up in Imago Day, we only had three kids. Uh, we already had three kids, I should say, so we only added one more, uh, so we didn't uh, up the population that way. But, uh, but we have four children who are with us this morning, and uh, we're just, just, just excited that, uh, to see what God is doing through Imago Day, to see the people he's sending out uh, to, to spread the gospel and, and the team. If you would, man, come, come out there and visit with us and see the table and just hear more about how you can pray for King's Cross. Um, but what we're doing and the reason that we're going down to Southwest Raleigh, where we're heading, which is right outside of NC State in an area of Raleigh of great need, is to bring the gospel. Um, and that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the text. And we're going to be in Luke, as was mentioned and read already. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10, the verses 25 through 37. And what is possibly one of Jesus' most familiar parables in or outside the church? Now, I didn't do a ton of homework other than Googling that, but it did seem like it came up on a lot of lists. People know this passage. They know the parable, but most often they actually know uh, really verses 30 through 35, right, the actual parable itself. And, but we're going to do this morning, in fact, we're going we're gonna to look at the broader context, the conversation going around that brings the parable. And more than that, we're also going to look at where it lands in Luke, because those are very important. Context matters. It really matters. You can walk away from the parable that Jesus um, tells, and many do with the wrong impression of what he's asking from us, with the wrong impression. Some do walk away exactly the opposite understanding just by reading the text of the parable. Now, for an example, I attended undergrad at a small military college in Virginia, and uh, we had our own lingo, our own world of ways of talking about things. And so you might over, overhear me tell a story to my BRs about the time my rat got PTs when the OD caught him running the block after SRC. <laughs> Who got that? You got that? <laughs> but unless you get the context of what I just said, there's likely very few of you, with exceptions, who actually know what I'm talking about or any hint of it. Now, now let me, don't get me wrong here, okay? I'm not trying to say God talks in codes. Jesus is not talking in codes. There's nothing to be, that we need to decrypt here, but it's really important that we understand what he's trying to communicate because Jesus is talking to a particular people at a particular time with particular preconceptions and ideas that he wants to address, but they also apply to us. See, theologian uh, Don Carson, his father was a pastor, and he quotes his father as saying this about the same issue. A text without the context provides a pretext for a proof text. In simple terms, that really means if we're not being honest readers and students of the totality of God's word, then we can begin to justify saying God says all sorts of things. 
So let's be honest, students, this morning, will we? Let's open up the text and see what God's Word says. Being that this is a really well-known passage, it's been preached throughout history. Actually, early church fathers love to do the allegory thing. I've seen them, uh, St. Augustine came at this passage uh, as an early church father. Augustine uh, takes the wounded man in the story as Adam, the Samaritan as Christ, the innkeeper is Paul, uh, the inn is purgatory. I don't know, he goes down this road, and that's not where we're going to go this morning. More, more modern speakers I've heard read this passage as saying, go and do better at serving strangers, you know, walk across the street, see someone in need, go out of your way to go meet that need. And while I believe that's what God does ask from us, and I believe that God does desire for us to serve others, we can get hung up on, on the levels of service and forget the question that's being answered here and forget the gospel. I've also heard this actually explained as a parable that's simply evangelistic, really. This guy's coming to him. Uh, he needs to hear the gospel. He needs to hear his need for Christ. So Jesus says, this is what the law requires. You can't do it. You need me. I don't deny that either. But it's reductive. Because we can't hold on to the central core tenets of the gospel, hear what Christ commands in this at the end, and say, go and do likewise, and be like, well, I'm good now. I've got Jesus. There's a call for compassion and love. So really in the end, bottom line, the parable was to illustrate what it looks like to be a true kingdom neighbor. That's what Jesus is trying to illustrate. And he's doing that in order to help the questioner, which in this case uh, is an expert in the law, see his lack of love and compassion for his neighbors. And in so doing, hopefully, ultimately expose that he really didn't truly know God if he didn't love his neighbor. See, your love and compassion as a neighbor reveals your heart. And I don't think it's just me. I don't think it's just me, but over the last year, there has been plenty of opportunities presented for all of us to find reasons to divide. I mean, I actually recently heard a, um, I saw a pastor tweet, I, I, I lost track of what I'm supposed to be mad about today, so I'm just gonna go ahead and share the gospel. And while there's so many opportunities for us to divide, the unfortunate thing is that leads to a, a lack of compassion. That leads to people who look at others that they disagree with, and even if they are in need, they find excuses not to serve that need. I think we can justify the same thing. And what I don't want to see is that creep in the church. Christ doesn't want to see that creep into the church because your love and compassion as a neighbor reveals the sincerity and knowledge of God. Look, let's look at the text, shall we? In Luke, we're in what's called, uh, referred to as the travel narrative. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. It actually starts in chapter 9. It's a long section of Luke. It's about 35% of, the, chap of the, uh, the book. And where, Je where Jesus is sitting in chapter 9, and it says that the time has come, and he turns his face towards Jerusalem. And he proceeds for the next 10 chapters that everything that happens is in the light of the cross. He's looking towards the cross. He's heading towards the cross. And at the very beginning of that, in chapter 9, verse 51, when we see that he's heading towards Jerusalem, he's also interacting with some Samaritans. And the Samaritans don't care for Jews. We're going to get into that in a little more detail later. But they don't care for Jews, and they know, it says in the text, that he's, he's heading towards Jerusalem, so they just reject him. 
and, and they, have, they don't have anything to do with this guy. He's about Jerusalem. He's about the Jews. He's not for us. Now, James and John, who are the most loving and compassionate of the disciples, uh, are referred to by Jesus as sons of thunder, wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans. Jesus, hey, you want us to call down fire on these guys? They didn't, they weren't vibing with us. Let's take them out. And Jesus rebukes them. It's not what we're about. So he's heading towards the cross. He's already corrected his disciples at one point about their reaction to others that disagree with them and don't want to have anything to do with them. He rebukes them on the desire to call down fire. And now we go into chapter 10 and we see that he sent out 72 disciples to lead the way, to prepare the way, to go into the cities and towns, to share the kingdom, to preach the kingdom. And the disciples come back in verse 17, and they, it, the, the Bible says that they returned with joy, but the reason they returned with joy was that they had, even the demons had submitted to them. They were excited and celebrating the good works that God had been doing through them. Check this out, Jesus. I was, this dude was over here, had the was possessed, I, I did exactly what you showed me to do. I said, I rebuke you, and they got out, and they were pumped about that. God's work is a good thing, but Jesus doesn't want them to stop there. He actually says, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You have the wrong priorities. You're, you, are, you are celebrating the wrong motives. And then finally, in right before we get to our passage, Jesus rejoicing in the Holy Spirit is praising God that hidden things, that these things, kingdom things, these truths are hidden from the wise and the understanding. They don't see it. But that God has revealed them to little children. And the little children he's speaking of are disciples, believers in here, little children he's talking about are us. That God would take and confound the wise and reveal them to little children. And he says, no one knows the Father unless the Son reveals him. And that these disciples that he has were able to see stuff that prophets and kings had long wanted to see and hear. And now we arrive at the passage of the parable. We arrive at the passage of the parable of the Good Samaritan, and it begins with one of the wise and the understanding of Israel asking a question of Jesus for the wrong reasons with the wrong motivations. And there's four movements that I want to walk through with you today. There's four movements that I see clearly. And it starts with the contest over the law, where the, the lawyer is asking a question of Jesus. And the second part is the commandment in question. The third is the compassion of a kingdom neighbor, where Jesus shows us what a kingdom neighbor looks like. And the fourth and final part that we're going to end with is Christ's call to obedience. So let's look at that together in the text, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So in this context, understand a lawyer is not like uh, your civil lawsuit guy that's going to help you figure out your legal issues. In this context, the lawyer is an expert in the law, someone who would know Jewish law frontwards, backwards, and everything in between. He's an expert. And he is in a circle of people who are sitting around this teacher, Jesus, and most often the teacher would set Everyone would sit around them and listen to the teacher as he expounds on whatever it is he's teaching that day. And this lawyer, when you ask a question, this is, this is proper, out of respect, you stand up quietly. We raise our hands, right? You stand up and you ask your question. Well, the lawyer's not being respectful. It's hidden motives, right? Luke plainly tells us the lawyer stood up to put him to the test. And do, are we familiar with what a dishonest question is? 
Okay. I, I, uh, I taught high school physics for two years. Physics for two years. I know I don't look that old. It was a long time ago, though. Okay. But I taught high school physics. And I had students in high school. Listen, you may have heard this question. There are no dumb questions. Have you ever heard that statement? Ever heard that? I'm not the only one that says that. Okay. High school students are always looking to get a laugh. You didn't know. High school students are always looking to mess with the teacher. So I had to change it up. I couldn't, I, I, I just couldn't. Maybe I don't teach anymore, so maybe that says something. But I had to change it up. I couldn't just say, there are no dumb questions, guys. I said, listen, there are, you may have heard this before, but there are no honest questions that are dumb questions. So don't waste our time. And then, then I lasted two years. So there you go. Maybe those aren't words to live by. But the Bible has better words. So let's look back at the text because the teacher here is being asked a dishonest question, right? The lawyer stands up and his question is telling. His question says, what, um, how do I inherit eternal life? Well, that's not really what he is interested in doing. He's not interested in finding out how to inherit eternal life. He's actually got wrong priorities here. He's wanting to show up the new teacher. He's testing him. This guy's drawing a crowd. We know throughout the Gospels that, that the lawyers, that the Pharisees, that the scribes, they all like attention, they all like being the center of it, and they like popularity. And this guy's getting it. And so he has a crowd. The, teach, the lawyer stands up to discredit Jesus. He wants to show his own wisdom and what he knows and wants to elevate his position. And Jesus responds. He said to him, he answers with a question, what is written in the law, how do you read it? This is a... This is an excellent skill you need to develop. It continues the conversation. Jesus knows his motivation. Think for this example that I, I heard once, Don Carson gave this, where he said, if, uh, if someone were to ask you, you don't believe in a literal hell, God sends people to a literal hell, don't, do you? He said, instead of trying to get into the thing of, well, uh, the holiness of God demands that, well, you're going to lose them at that point. But engage the conversation, he encourages you to say, well, you don't believe that everybody would go to heaven, would you? Maybe not Hitler or maybe, maybe uh, Pol Pot or somebody he goes, okay, so there's a hell for Hitler and Pol Pot. What's your criteria? You see the question in the dialogue going on? That's what Jesus is doing. He's an expert at this. And so he asks the question. He says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He knows that the lawyer has wrong motivations, and he knows that the lawyer already knows the answer. He already knows the answer. He's a student of the law. And it also demonstrates to everyone at the, that's sitting around that Jesus is a friend of the law. He's not here to destroy it. He said, I've come to, uh, not to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come to abolish, uh, I'm sorry, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus is a friend of the law. And the lawyer knows that, but he's not going to miss an opportunity to answer correctly, is he? I mean, he has a question about the law, and he doesn't know the answer. So he answers. He says, the lawyer, the answer's with this. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He answers with what is also answered by Jesus elsewhere in the Gospels, is the greatest commandment. They asked him, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? And he gave this answer, and then said, the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. So guess what the lawyer did? He gave the right answer. Congratulations. Nailed it. Right? Go on. If you, Jesus says, you did it, nailed it, do this, and you'll live. This answer actually comes from two places in the Old Testament. There's a place in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6 uh, known as the Shema. Everyone there would have been familiar with this in, as, as far as Jewish culture is concerned because 
faithful Jews recited this in the morning and in the evening before they went to bed. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Guys, this makes entirely, this, this makes incredible sense. I mean, think about the fact. In ancient culture, the Romans had a pantheon of gods. The Greeks had a ton of gods. If you wanted to go across the sea and you wanted to safe travel, you'd make sacrifices to Poseidon. If you needed to make sure you had a good speech that week, or I'm preaching, I'm orating, or whatever, I might make sacrifices to that god. If my wife wants to be pregnant or I want to have children, I would make sacrifices to the fertility god. Every god gets a piece of me. God starts off the commands by saying, listen to me, Israel. I'm one. You owe me everything. The first and greatest commandment. And then the second. The second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus 18, 19. The same answer that Jesus gave as well. I mean, great teachers often repeat themselves. Great teachers often repeat themselves. <laughs> great teachers often repeat themselves. But in this case, Jesus would have recited this on multiple occasions, possibly. It was familiar to the Jewish crowd, and the lawyer answered correctly. But if Jesus is telling him, you do this and you live, what's up with that? I mean, are we saved by grace, but through faith, or what? Is it a work thing? Wait, have I got to change stuff up? See, he's not lying, is he? If you and I manage to fulfill the law and love God perfectly, and then love others the way we love ourselves, yeah, we warrant eternal life. But as R.C. Sproul once said, we are all justified by works. They're just not our works. So while what the lawyer answered is correct, what he misses is that it's not in himself that he's able to fulfill it. That Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf. But Jesus meets the lawyer exactly where he is. If you believe yourself righteous enough on your own, go ahead, fulfill the law. And you know what? The Pharisees liked being seen. They liked being known to fulfill the law. They liked people to see their good works, and they liked honor in the streets. They liked the best seat at the table, and they, liked, they felt justified by how others saw them. And that's why this guy stood up to test Jesus. Because in order to justify himself... Jesus says, you know all these things, and you do all these things, and you search the scripture, but you miss me. The law points us to our need for a savior, to our need for Jesus. If this man had actually seen himself rightly before God, now is the point he would respond like the tax collector in Luke 18. The tax collector that says, beating his chest, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the one that Jesus said went home justified. But instead, this lawyer doubles down and he questions the commandment. Verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? Hey, I don't want to quibble, I do, but, I mean, you said this law thing and I hear what you're saying, but here's the fact, the lawyer wasn't going to be had by this teacher. 
He wanted to save face. He wanted to go further in the debate. He wanted to justify himself. It wasn't, just, it wasn't a play at salvation, by the way. Not for a second, I don't believe that. What really was at play here is that the lawyer had all the wrong priorities. He was absolutely more concerned about how he appeared to everyone else in the crowd than about whether his name was written in heaven. See, remember Jesus' warning before this in 1020 about priorities? And it becomes evident in the follow-up question that he offered. He said, who is my neighbor? He skips right over the first one, right? The love of the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Okay, got that. Who's my neighbor? You didn't have any questions about that. And could I, could I submit to you that the truth is he skipped over that because it's really quite easier to fake religion and devotion to God and do all the right things and know all the right words because now it's only between you and God. And if you don't care about that, then you can look good to everybody else. That's why Jesus called teachers and Pharisees at the time whitewashed tombs. They looked good on the outside, but inside they were dead men's bones. And the truth is that they were exposed because the mercy, mercy and compassion that they lacked for their neighbors betrayed what was really in their heart. It's possible to perform all those expected religious activities and say all the right things, but God hates empty worship. He says it over and over again. In the Old Testament in Isaiah, he says, bring no more vain offerings. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. In Micah 6, 6 through 8, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be blessed with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires for you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. All those things don't honor him. I could stand here, unfortunately, and list off religious leaders and figures that we are probably familiar with who have fallen into the snare of living a religious public life. They were satisfied with the appearances of holiness. Only the dark reality of their soul was to be uncovered later. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God in the law because from the very beginning, the righteous have always lived by faith. But there's a call to obedience. And brothers and sisters, don't fall into the snare. Don't fall into the snare. At this point, you have to examine your own heart and motives. Do you care more about your appearance before others and what they think about you? Or are you more concerned with what God thinks and the holiness he wants to work in you? The lawyer asked this question because your love for neighbor betrays your true heart. There were likely people in the crowd who knew this guy. He knew he didn't show compassion. They knew what his life was among friends and family or neighbors, and they knew how he treated others, and he wanted to justify himself. This is actually demonstrated in the New Testament when Paul talks about the fact that the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That exposes you. And commentator Timothy George about this exact idea says it's not because it's superior to the worship and adoration of God, 
but rather because it's the proof of it. This wasn't a new question to the rabbis either. Actually, the teachers, when they were looking at this, they had various schools of thought. They actually asked themselves, because they always wanted to justify themselves, who do I actually need to show compassion to? Who is my neighbor? And in rabbis' school of thought, you often had people say that, well, the Jewish people were our neighbors. We really owed that kind of love and devotion to only Jewish people. And then others might go a little further and say, it's the faithful Jewish people, the ones that aren't sinners, right? The ones that are not the them. They definitely weren't talking about Gentiles, and they most assuredly did not include Samaritans as a neighbor. So this wasn't the question. This wasn't a new question, but Jesus rejected the premise. It wasn't about who's my neighbor. Jesus wanted to show this man what it looks like to actually be a neighbor, and that's why he goes to the parable. He wanted to blow up everyone's categories by using this parable to illustrate the compassion of a kingdom neighbor. So let's look at the parable together. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down to the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now the path to Jerusalem would have been really familiar from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about 17 miles, it's downhill, rocky terrain. There's lots of caves and spaces for people to hide People, travelers would have gotten ambushed there. Um, it wouldn't have been uncommon. And so Jesus brings them to a place that they would have known and recognized, but he also doubles down on fake religion by his first two examples. By the way, in Jewish culture, you want something to really be emphasized, you do it the first time, then you go with the second time. So he shows a priest, who's a guy working in the temple, right? The priest in the temple. And then he has a Levite, which is an assistant in the temple, helping the priest. And what do both of them do? They're returning from working in the temple in Jerusalem. They're heading down the road. They've said the Shema that morning. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And they were going to be doing it before they went to bed. And when they saw this man on the street beaten, stripped, robbed, and dying, they ignored their neighbor. They ignored him. And then Jesus moves on to the next part of the story. In verse 33, because after these two religious leaders ignore this man, the crowd is likely okay, and they're like, good deal. We knew that those priests and rabbis and scribes were trouble. Now here comes the cool, simple Jewish man who's going to save the day, right? But a Samaritan. As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. There's at least four marks of a kingdom neighbor evident in the parable. When we look at this, we see how the Samaritan and Jesus' Samaritan illustrates, treats the man, and we see this. First and foremost, he saw the man, he saw the Imago Dei. He saw value, he saw and had compassion. That word empathy, that's a soul, that's deep, it's inside, it's an association, it's an identification. It's to recognize the human being across from you is not an enemy to be tackled, it's not an a nuisance to be ignored but it's a person to care for, the imago Dei, the image of God in them. He saw the need in another human being and immediately came to meet it. 
Throughout the Gospels, this is the exact word that is used when Christ sees the crowd. He saw us and he had compassion. We're all created in the image of God with dignity, value, and worth. And we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. Remember that from 2 Corinthians. Do you see the image of God in people? Brothers and sisters, are there many ways, there are many ways we can actually interact superficially with people without compassion. We can dehumanize them. And when we see and judge others through maybe what's reported on the news just because we don't agree with what they have to say or we don't agree with what they're doing and we dehumanize our opinions on them. When we only absorb the hot take from our favorite commentator about how we need to think about this person or that person and we fail to see the image of God in them. Or when we just sit back at our home because we're a keyboard warrior has a hot opinion that everybody needs to hear. We don't see the face and definitely don't acknowledge the imago Dei in the person on the other end of our rants. A kingdom neighbor sees imago Dei in people. Second, this Samaritan demands no qualification. Underneath the lawyer's question is this assumption, right? The lawyer is asking this question in a way that says, there are some people that don't deserve to be my neighbor. There are some people out there, surely, that I don't have to love like myself. But Jesus intentionally uses a Samaritan. Remember them? The same ones that rejected him earlier? By the Jewish people, the reason James and John felt comfortable responding the way they did, the Jewish people considered them hated half-breed. They had a race problem and a religious problem with them. And they wanted nothing to do with them. It's actually the Samaritans came from the raiding and the, um, uh, the slavery that occurred with the Assyrians when they raided northern Israel. And, and what they would do is they would take part of the people there and move them out and transplant them and bring in some of their own people. And so eventually you end up getting intermarriage and you get uh, new children that are coming from those marriages. And, and then they develop more re- different religions. They put up their own temple. You can see the debate when uh, the Samaritan woman met with Jesus and said, do you worship on this hill or this mountain here? And so the Jewish people saw them and said, they are, they are terrible people. They're not even purely Jewish. But then in reality, there's no love lost, by the way. It goes both ways. The Samaritans, uh, when the Jews were building their temple, they were rebuilding the temple, the Samaritans were throwing dead pig carcasses into the construction site so they could defile it. And it would take weeks to purify that thing. Doesn't that just sound awful? Dead pig, oh my, more pig carcasses here today. But they were doing that to each other. They just, they hated each other. It was in spite. And then the Jews raided the north and they destroyed the Samaritan temple. So it went both ways. But what we see demonstrated in here is that there's no qualifications for compassion. And it's unearned. This guy did nothing to earn it. It was in spite of any identity. The Samaritan had no idea who this guy was. And it was regardless of status. This guy, rich man, poor man, political leader, slave, you all look the same when you're stripped down naked and beaten. And this Samaritan saw the man in his need. He didn't check his political party registration. He didn't check whether he had an NRA membership. And he didn't check for his vaccination card. He had compassion. The only qualification this man had was his need. He didn't look for evidence of worthiness. He saw the need, and he met it. Teaching the same passage, R.C. Sproul 
put it this way, when someone has fallen into the ditch, it's not our place to ask how they got there. We help them out of the ditch. Listen, every believer here in this room today has a story about where God met you when he, gave you and he showed you his grace. Who among us here ever met any qualifications before God poured out the riches of his mercy on us? We show compassion and mercy to our neighbor because God has been so merciful to us. When none of us could have done anything to earn it. How can we qualify who we show compassion to when God has been so compassionate with us? A kingdom neighbor demands no qualification for his compassion. The third thing we see is he's generous when meeting the needs. He's generous with his possessions. He pours out his oil and wine. He cleansed this man's wounds. It was like first century uh, first aid. He bandaged his wounds, likely had to tear his own clothing to do that. He then put him on his own animal. And remember, this is a 17-mile trek. We don't know where this occurred, but it's likely not near Jericho. So he would have walked for miles carrying this man on the back of his own animal. And once he got to the place where he took him, he paid for the care the man needed. I've seen this estimated. The two denarii he gave was anywhere from three weeks up to two months' worth of care that he paid for. Lavish, generous. And then on top of that, when he left the next day, by the way, next day, he tells the innkeeper, whatever else he needs, do it, I'll pay you when I get back. I'm, I don't ever know when I'd write that kind of a blank check. He's also extremely generous with his time. He sidetracked whatever trip he was on to carry this man. He wasn't getting there as fast as he needed to. He stayed overnight with this person he just met who had the need so he could care for him. Why do we hold so tightly to our time and our possessions? Why is it as Christians that we don't understand we're God's stewards managing our time, gifts, and possessions that he grants us? What is it that you have that wasn't received from God? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Something else to note, it's not explicitly put in the test, but something to consider as kingdom neighbors, that he had to plan for generosity. I mean, I understand it's a hurried life. I understand we wear it like a badge of honor that we have a really busy schedule and no time for things to do. But it's not a virtue. It's an issue. It's not about being in high demand. It's about us lacking the discipline to plan. This Samaritan had money available to give. He budgeted for this. He provided the opportunity that he could be generous. He made space in his calendar by setting aside his time to prioritize this man. A kingdom neighbor is generous with their possessions and generous with their time, and they plan ahead so they can show that generosity to neighbors in need. And finally and fourthly, we see that he expects nothing in return. What could this man offer him? The Samaritan had no way of expecting any repayment from this guy. Remember, they took his clothes, they took his wallet, took everything from him. In fact, it's likely the man was not going to be able to repay it. More than that, 
the Samaritan was saving this man from likely debt, debtor's prison. Because if he had woken up and the Samaritan didn't come back, this man was going to be taken away to pay for the credit that was extended to him by the innkeeper. But instead, the Samaritan was generous with him and expected nothing back. He wasn't going to to get a title for what he did. He wasn't going to get notoriety. He wasn't going to get anything out of this deal. But instead, he took someone who could not repay them, and he did everything for them. Like Jesus encouraged us in Luke, he says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The Samaritan gave generously. But it's easier for us to be generous when there's something to gain, isn't it? Isn't it? I I remember when I applied to college, they required that I had community service on my transcript. I know it's a good thing. Please don't do community service if you're going to college. That's good. But the fact is, I did it to get something. Matter of fact, I don't think I did anything. I think I found a way to get the credit out of something I already done. I, I don't remember. It was legit, I promise. My degree's good. Are you concerned about who knows about your good deeds? Do you only help people when it helps you? Because a kingdom neighbor shows compassion and expects nothing in return. So after Jesus has given us the illustration of what a kingdom neighbor looks like, he goes on to the fourth movement of this entire passage and starts in verse 36, in which he now presents another question to this lawyer, the final question. He, he addresses this question of who's my neighbor with a parable, and then he closes by asking a follow-up question to the lawyer, and it goes like this. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Who is it that you look at this story Mr. Lawyer Man, who wants to know who I should be a neighbor to? And who is it that proved to be a neighbor? The question is no longer who's my neighbor, right? The question is, how do I be a neighbor? The lawyer answers correctly. He says, the one who showed him mercy. And lest we miss it, he still couldn't say Samaritan. He beat around it, the one that showed the mercy. Jesus then wraps up the entire section of this passage by his final words, you go and do likewise. And this isn't Jesus here ending this on the note of go and do better. It's not go and do better so that you can have eternal life. Instead, this is more like the plea that he makes to the Pharisees in Matthew 9, where he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. He's saying, yes. Go and do likewise. Show mercy. That's what I desire. The lawyer wanted to justify himself before men, but Jesus wants to justify us before God. And no amount of sacrifice earns God's mercy. Listen, if you're someone who's outside the the family of God here today, if you're an unbeliever, it was not Jesus' point here, but I don't want us to miss it, that in the end, he's the ultimate good Samaritan. In the end. See, he came along at the right time to bind our wounds and heal us. Except we weren't just dying. We were already dead in our sins. 
talking about this, Sproul actually quote, is quoted saying, God just doesn't throw a life preserver to a drowning person. He goes to the bottom of the sea and pulls a corpse from the bottom of the sea, takes him up on the bank, breathes into him the breath of life, and makes him alive. We weren't jumped by thieves. This wasn't something that was done to us. We were already dead in our sins by our own guilt. And Jesus didn't just clean our physical wounds and bandage us up. He took on our sin and our guilt so we might be pure and righteous before God. And Jesus doesn't just offer a ride to drop us off at an inn. He brings us into the household of God and makes us family. Jesus Christ sees you. He knows your guilt. He knows your shame. And he is compassionate. He wants to bind your wounds, take your guilt, and bring you into the family. Don't leave here today without coming to myself or one of the other pastors. Has, always, has already been encouraged because we would love to tell you more about the mercy and compassion of our great God. And believers here today, it doesn't end there, right? There's actually a command at the end. Jesus says, go and do likewise. He doesn't just say, good, you got it, now you're saved. He says, go and do likewise. The call from Christ is obedience. We don't just go and do better to justify ourselves. We're not defined by our service before men our identity is in our Savior before God. And in that identity, our Savior washed feet. The servant's not greater than the master. Christ is our Savior and Christ is our example. Unless you forget, the Holy Spirit has been placed in you so that God's love has been poured into our own hearts through his Spirit that's been given to us so that we might show that love to the world. When considering how it is that we can fulfill the law of love and service to our neighbors, the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones explains it this way. We see them now no longer as hateful people who are trying to rob us of our rights or trying to beat us in the race for money or position or fame. We see them as we see ourselves, as the victims of sin and of Satan, as the dupes of the God of this world, as fellow creatures who are under the wrath of God and hellbound. We have an entirely new view of them. We see them to be exactly as we see ourselves, and we are both in a terrible predicament. And we can do nothing but both of us together must run to Christ and avail ourselves of his wonderful grace. We begin to enjoy it together, and we want to share it together. That's how it works. It's the only way whereby we can ever do unto others as we should, as we would that they should do unto us. It is when we are really loving our neighbors ourselves because we have been delivered from the thraldom of self that we begin to enjoy the glorious liberty of the children of God. Our king humbled to the point of death so we might live. Our God is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. And you can never out-neighbor our God. We've been given life so that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his light. And as you go, Amago Day, open your eyes to see the needs of people around you because they bear the image of God. Show unqualified compassion and mercy because God lavished compassion and mercy on us. Be generous with your time and your possessions because what do you have that was not given to you by God? And even if this world gives you nothing in return, if your name isn't celebrated and there's no memorials ever raised in your honor, 
Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. You go and do likewise. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for your mercy and compassion and love. God, I pray that we never, ever grow dull to the depth of your grace. Lord, I thank you for your word and for the example you've given us in the Samaritan, how you've demonstrated your love towards us. Even though while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Continue to teach us in this way. Shape us. Make us more like Christ. Fill us with your spirit so that as we leave here today that we would see people in need and we would show compassion the way you've shown and poured out so much compassion on us. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.